This chapel message is brought to you by the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. Well, I want to go back and revisit a topic that I covered many moons ago. And uh, a lot of you weren't here then. Those who were probably forgot. And, uh, of course, repetition is key to learning, so it wouldn't hurt to us to, I mean, why don't we keep studying the Bible over and over? We get new revelations and we reinforce what we've learned. So hopefully that will happen for you today. Now, I, the slides are full of information, and I do that intentionally because if those of you who want them to then take them and make them your own and share them with your family or your small groups, that's fine. But without the information there, it's hard. When I've given outline slides before, people call me and say, now, what did you say on this slide? So i put a lot of information on the slides in case you want to use them. So we're going to talk about the events of Passion Week, also known as Holy Week. So, what day of the week were you born? How many know what day of the week you were born? Most of you don't. What day of the week did, I mean, this is, you don't remember your birth, but many of you remember 9-11. What day of the week was that on? Most people don't remember. It was a Tuesday. Does it matter what day it was on? Those things are realities. We have evidence of it. So it really doesn't matter what day of the week. So I want to put that in context about what we're talking about today. We're going to talk about the events of Passion Week. And I'll tell you a little bit of warning ahead of time. It may be different than the timeline that you've normally heard or been taught or the timeline that you've celebrated. So I began first teaching this back in the 80s without knowing anybody else had... Uh, had written about it, so I didn't have much to go on. Since then, there's been a lot more written about it, and there's some good literature out there, and I'm going to give you some references for it uh, to explain why this timeline is reasonable. I consider it uh, plausible, but not certain, and it's not, it's not essential for the importance of the story, and it's not essential for our faith. Please keep that in mind. And you can be skeptical. And if you are, do what the Bereans did. Luke, in his discussion of Paul's visit to the Bereans, said that they went and searched the scriptures to see if everything Paul said was true. And you're welcome to do that as well. So here's our traditional view. You know this traditional view was established in the 15th century, well more than a thousand years after Christ. Church got together and said, well, let's formalize these celebrations. Now, there's some evidence that people were making pilgrimages to Jerusalem as early as the 4th century, but there was no established dates for celebrating this, this, this. So the church decided to do that in the 15th century, and they defined Palm Sunday as Christ's triumphal entry. And, of course, the palm comes from the palm branches that were waved and the people throwing their cloaks down and crying, Hosanna. Maundy Tuesday. Thursday, excuse me, Maundy Thursday. Maundy comes from the Latin mandatum, and that means commandment. When Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, well, that wasn't new, but the following part was that you love one another as I have loved you. That's where we get Maundy Tuesday from. Good Friday, 
Some of you probably heard wrongly that this was sort of a corruption of the concept of a God Friday. That was sort of a folky thing. There's no historical evidence for that. It really comes from the fact that good in times past was used as a word that meant holy or pious. So we call it Good Friday because it's a holy Friday because what God was doing in his redemptive plan. And then we have Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. We have Easter Sunday sunrise services celebrating the resurrection of Christ. That's the traditional view. But the words that prompted me to look into this are found in Matthew chapter 12 where the people came and wanted another miracle, another sign. And Jesus responded, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so would the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, many other places in Scripture talks about the three days when he was taught before the Sanhedrin. Uh, they said, well, he said he had tear down the temple and build it back in three days. Things like that were in three days. But this is the most explicit definition of what Jesus said was going to happen to him. Three days and three nights. So that creates the dilemma. How do you get from a Friday night, Friday evening burial before sunset to a Sunday morning resurrection? At best, that's 70, 36 hours, not 72 hours. Three days, three nights, 72 hours. That's about half the time. I don't know how you would stretch it out. So here's, a, here's another dilemma, one that might shake your boat a little bit, rock your boat, is that did the resurrection really occur on Sunday morning as tradition holds and as we still celebrate? By the way, there's nothing wrong with celebrating sunrise services, nothing wrong with Good Friday services and Monday Thursday services. All those things are just fine. I'm not suggesting we change any of those celebrations. But this timeline, to me, makes a lot more sense of the biblical account. So, problems. Uncertainty about Jesus' birth and crucifixion dates. The Julian calendar was formed in 46 B.C., B.C. and A.D. was not devised until the 6th century, 525, and it wasn't widely used until the 9th century. But then we had the Gregorian calendar that was formed in 1582, and it was to correct for errors in the Julian calendar. All those changes in this historical time, uncertain about B.C., A.D., by the way, there's no year zero. It went from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., but... Historians, because of calendar changes, aren't sure exactly what that fits in with things. So we're left not sure about the um, date of Jesus' birth. I think the best range that scholars have picked is between 4 and 6 B.C. And the best date we can come up with for Christ's death is 29 to 32. Some speculate as late as 36, but I don't see there's much evidence for that. But there is one thing we can be sure of. God chose the right time. You know the difference between Kronos and Kairos? We've talked about this before. Kronos is the passing of time like on your watch. Kairos is the moment in time where something strategic or pretentious takes place. And scripture tells us that in Romans 5. You see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And in Galatians 4, Paul says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. So we know it was the perfect time. We just don't know where it fell on the calendar. 
So I just wanted to make you remind you of something you already know that there's a plan, a redemptive plan that involves a lamb. We see this in Isaiah 53. He was led like a lamb to slaughter. And John 1, look, there is the lamb of God, John the Baptist said. In Revelation, you see a lamb looking as if he had been slain before the throne of God. The lamb of God is strategic in this, and we'll see how. So important background information we're going to try to cover in the time we have we're going to look at the Passover lamb. We're going to look at the Jewish Sabbaths, both the weekly and the special Sabbaths, the difference between Jewish and Roman days when they began, and we're going to look at some verses that give us clues to the timeline. So back to Exodus chapter 12, the Passover lamb. It says there that on the 10th day of the first month, now we're going to talk about first month, but when you see the word Ibit or Nisan, it's the same, and I'll explain why in just a minute. But that's the first month. On the tenth day, you take a lamb, and each person is to do that. Uh, there's to be males without spot or blemish. And then you take care of them and in inspect them until the fourteenth day of the month when they were to be slaughtered and a meal prepared. Remember the name of that meal? A Seder meal. That's what we called it traditionally. And the the blood will be a sign on your houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. What a great concept that God provided of redemption through the shedding of blood, through an innocent lamb, and then eventually an innocent son of God for our redemption. Again, we see in Leviticus 23 on the 14th day of the first month. Now, initially, um, the first month was called a bib, and many scholars still use a bib. But after the Babylonian captivity, the Jews sort of adopted the Babylonian word for that month, Nisan. So you'll see it both ways, depending on which scholar you read. Nisan and Ibit are the same first month. And that corresponds to our March-April time frame, spring, first month of the year. So we see unblemished land selected on the 10th, inspected from the 10th to the 14th. Why they inspect it? They want to make sure there's no illness in that lamb. There was nothing wrong with that lamb. They wanted to make sure of that. Sacrificed on the 14th, and we'll see the 14th is Passover, and then the Seder meal was served at the end of the 14th, beginning of the 15th in the evening. Remember, the Jewish days, as we'll see, begin at sunset, go to sunset. All right. And these dates we're going to talk about, the dates can occur on any given day of the week. Depending on what year it was, if we knew the year, we might be able to look at the historical record and say, oh, well, that day, always, that day, that year occurred on this day of the week. We don't have that record. So these dates could have been on any, and they varied from year to year when the dates fell on what days of the week. So, weekly status, go back to Genesis. We're going to abbreviate some of this for the sake of our time. But God ordained a Sabbath, and later he made a commandment that we keep that Sabbath, and it was to be the seventh day of the week. What was the seventh day of the week? When did it begin? Anybody? The seventh day of the week began when? Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. Remember, the Jewish day starts in the evening and goes to the next day. It's a very busy slide. I'm going to break it out for you in just a minute. But just look at all the feasts. Now, I told you there were weekly Sabbaths and there are special Sabbaths. We also call them feast days. But in Scripture, they're also called special Sabbaths or high days. Uh, it's just too busy for you to see all that, so I'm going to skip through it. By the way, there's one that's not listed here, and that's Hanukkah. 
Some people say, well, Hanukkah's not in the Bible, but it is. Hanukkah is mentioned in John chapter 10, where it says that Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah. It occurs in the winter. It says right there in John chapter 10, it's in the wintertime. Hanukkah celebrates when the uh, Maccabean revolt overthrew Antiochus Epiphanes about 160 years before Christ. And they threw out the pagans and rededicated the temple. And Jews still celebrate Hanukkah today. It's around our Christmas time. Too much information, right? So feast days, we have weekly Sabbaths and we have special Sabbaths. And those don't fall on any particular day of the week. Passion Week had multiple Sabbaths. Important clue. How do we know that? Here's a segment of that chart. Passover occurred on the 14th of Ibid. Feast of Unleavened Bread occurred from the 15th to the 21st. And if you read that passage in the scripture, it talks about the first and last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread or days of commemoration. They were the special high days. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was on the 15th, and that was a special Sabbath. And then we have first fruits. There's an error here in this chart. It says the 16th. Actually, if you read Leviticus, it says that it's going to be confusing, that first fruits occurred on the first day of the week during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Feast of Unleavened Bread started on a date, could it be any day of the week, and then as you push through that week, when you got to a Sunday, which was the first day of the week, that was to be first fruits. You tracking with me? We'll go back through it. All right. So we have special, we have Sabbaths of Passover. We have a weekly Sabbath. It occurred on Friday night to Sunday night, Saturday night. We have Passover, which occurred on the 14th. We have Feast of Unleavened Bread. It started on the 15th with seven-day celebration. And then we have first fruits, which occurred on the first day of the week during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay? Four special days during that week period of time. Now, every Sabbath had a day of preparation. Except we don't see one. Passover is one of those special high days that sort of stands out by itself. The rules for Passover are a little different. We won't go into that. But think of Passover as being sort of special among special days, okay? But every Sabbath, whether weekly or special, had a day of preparation. You've got to get ready for the Sabbath. And that's what they did. So the weekly Sabbath, day of preparation, occurs Thursday night to Friday night. Okay? The day before the weekly Sabbath starts. A special day of preparation occurred on the day before whatever date that was. Not a given day of the week. So Passion Week also had multiple days of preparation. We need to look at that too. And when we see that in the Bible, we say, now which day of preparation is it? And which Sabbath are they talking about? The scripture talking about? That's where we get in trouble if we don't ask that question. If we just assume we're talking about a weekly Sabbath, it can lead to misunderstanding. So here's an important clue. John 19. Here's how the NIV reads. Now it was a day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. 
because the Jews did not want bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Jesus is hanging on the cross at this point in time. So we know it's Passover day. The next day, what's the day that follows Passover? The Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the day before a special Sabbath is a day of preparation. So in this case, Passover is also the day of preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And remember, Passover is when you take the lamb, you slaughter it, you prepare a meal, and as the day ends and the next day begins at sunset, you're taking your Seder meal that evening. So it's a day of preparation, and then you lead into Unleavened Bread. The English Standard Version says, it puts a parenthesis in the middle of that sentence and says, for that Sabbath was a high day. And the King James says, for that Sabbath was a high day. Very important distinction is made in Scripture about what's going to happen the next day, not defining a weekly Sabbath, but a special Sabbath. I think it was a failure of the church fathers who formalized this calendar of traditional events. Maybe at that point in church history, they weren't that concerned about or considerate of or knowledgeable about Jewish customs and mores and calendars and all that. Or maybe they just choose to, chose to ignore it and came up with dates that fit their schedule. But I think a failure to recognize this distinction here is what led to the traditional timeline. So the day of preparation, the day before Jesus, the day of Jesus' crucifixion was Passover the 14th and the day, that's the day the lamb was to be prepared and, and killed and sacrificed. Special day, and before every Sabbath, there's a day of preparation. So Passover was a day of preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In this case, not a weekly Sabbath. So 14th, Passover, 15th, Unleavened Bread. Those things always go back to back. So let's look at some different beginning points for a day. The Roman day began at midnight, just like our modern day does. The Jewish day begins at sunset. And the reason you go back to Genesis, when he's defining all this, he says in the evening, there was the evening and the morning, the first day. Because of that sequence of words, the Jews took that to establish the beginning of a day was at sunset. Now, that maybe seem weird to you because you're not used to it. But why do we take midnight to be the beginning of the day? We could have easily said sunrise was the beginning of the day. But the Jewish tradition is that sunset is the beginning of the day. We take midnight to be that. And so you got to look in Scripture when it's talking about when something happened or a certain hour of the day. you got to say, well, are they using the Jewish nomenclature? Like probably John does at least in one place. Or Matthew, Mark, Luke clearly use the Jewish times of the day to define what's going on. Now, this is too busy for you to see, but I want you to see that other scholars have tried to sort this out, the different times of the day and everything that happened on those days. Kevin Connor does a great job of it. Michael Harris does a great job of it. If you get the slides, you can read these more in detail. So the solution to these dilemmas, and I think a good explanation is that the crucifixion occurred on a Wednesday, on a Passover, and the burial occurred by sunset. And the resurrection occurred Saturday after sunset. We don't know when, but after sunset. Because Saturday sunset was the first day of the week. Began the first day of the week. 
So let's go through the daily events quickly as we can. And look, I go back to Ibid 9 because we have a pretty good hard point to start our calendar working. Uh, Ibid 9 being Thursday to sunset on f to Friday. Now, to keep from getting so confused, I've chosen the daytime. Okay, if it, it, the day goes through the night and the next day. Most of the events happen during the daytime. So I'm going to choose the Friday, I mean the during the day. Unless there's events we know it happened at night, like Jesus' rest and so forth. Okay, we're going to talk. The ninth being a Friday, we know that Jesus arrives in Bethany. It's a day of preparation for what? The weekly Sabbath. And we know from John that six days before Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus raised from the dead. We have a pretty good hard starting point, six days before Passover, to start counting to see what happened. He had dinner with Mary, anoints Jesus' feet, and Judas complains about the cost of the anointing oil. Now, I want to make a note here. I think just about every scholar agrees there were two anointing of Jesus' feet because the people there were different and the locations were different. The other anointing happened at Simon the leper's house probably about three days later, if you look at the sequence. If you get those two anointings of his feet confused, the timeline gets confusing even more. Okay, the tenth being Saturday was a weekly Sabbath. It said in John 12, the next day the great crowd had come for the feast and heard Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Where was Jesus coming from that day? The night before he went to the house of Lazarus and that was in Bethany. Now Bethany is just over the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. Is it a Sabbath day journey? Well, it's pretty close. If it's a little further out, I don't think Jesus was concerned about that because he had already shown the scribes and Pharisees that he wasn't interested in their man-made rules. A Sabbath day journey was a thousand double steps or about 2,000 cubits or about two-thirds of a mile. And maybe Bethany's a little further than that. Was Jesus worried about that? He already said, hey, your man-made rules are outside the spirit of the law. I keep the commandment. I honor the Sabbath. That's what's important. Somebody criticized Jesus for coming from Bethany to Jerusalem that day because it may have been a little bit further than the rules by the Pharisees. So they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blesses the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blesses the king of Israel. That was on a Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. We celebrate it when? On Sunday. There's nothing wrong with that. We call it Palm Sunday. We're celebrating the event. That's what's important. So, the triumphal entry. Jesus arrives. There's a large crowd. He arrives late in the day. We know that from Mark 11. He entered Jerusalem and went to the temple, looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. And this sort of establishes a pattern where every day Jesus and the disciples would go back to Bethany and then come into Jerusalem every day. Why was he coming to Jerusalem every day? To be inspected, just like the Passover lamb. To be seen, to be seen without spot or blemish. So, the 11th being a Sunday, first day of the week. Jesus curses the unfruitful fig tree. He teaches in parables on Monday. The tree, tree, fig tree is found withered. 
And we see from Matthew, now we got another marker, two days until Passover. And again in Mark 14, Passover and unleavened bread are two days away. Now Passover and unleavened bread often are seen as the same. They're distinct days, but they're celebrated back to back, okay? On the 13th, a Thursday, a Tuesday, excuse me, disciples are sent to reserve a room and prepare for what we call the Last Supper. Now, this would be odd for you because Jesus didn't, and his disciples had their Seder a day early. I'll show you evidence for that in just a minute. But because Jesus knew that he was going to be on a cross during the day on Passover and be buried before sunset on the day of Passover, he sent his disciples to prepare the meal a day early. And I'll show you reasons to believe that in just a moment. So on the 14th, on Passover, it's sunset to sunset. Let's first look at the Tuesday night. Remember, the day starts at sunset. So this is Passover day started at sunset on Tuesday. The Lord's Supper, Tuesday evening. Judas betrays, the farewell discourse. Prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, his arrest. He's taken before Annas and then Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And here's the evidence. In John 18, it says that as the morning, early in the morning, we know from the compilation of all the Gospels, he was taken from the Jews to Pilate to be judged because the Jews couldn't uh, exercise capital punishment and they wanted him killed, so they took him to Pilate. And it says they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, that would be Pilate. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's quarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. See, they had not eaten the Passover yet, and the disciples and Jesus had already the evening before. But knowing what was to come, Jesus had their celebration early. So we're still on the 14th Passover. During the daytime events, he's taken before Pilate, and then Herod, he was scourged and crucified around 9 a.m. Darkness on the land between noon and 3 p.m., his death around 3 p.m., and his burial before sunset. Now remember, this day, the Passover lamb was slain. On Passover, the lamb was prepared, slaughtered, prepared, and eaten at the close of the day as the feast, as Passover was ending, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was beginning. So we're in the 15th now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a Thursday, special Sabbath, as John has already told us. They went and asked that a guard be placed on the tomb because they didn't want his body stolen and claimed that he had resurrected. So this was the next day, the one after the preparation day. What was the preparation day? The day before Sabbath. What day was this? The Sabbath. It was a special Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the day before would have been a preparation day. The chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. If you always try to force a weekly Sabbath into this story, it doesn't work. So the 16th, the Friday. The second day of preparation. During the day on Friday, they prepared for the weekly Sabbath that began at sunset. It was another preparation day. And the previous preparation day was Passover day itself in preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
So we know from Scripture in Luke, it says they went home and prepared spices and perfume. They went home on the 16th to do that, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the command. That would be the 17th. 17th began at sunset on Friday. The day of preparation was during the day on Friday. That's when they went and collected the perfume and the anointing oils. So on Saturday, this would be their weekly Sabbath, and as Luke says, they rested on that Sabbath in obedience to Scripture. And then Saturday sunset to Sunday sunset, first day of the week, and all the scholars out there agree that Jesus rose and came out of his tomb physically. Now, he, spirit, we have evidence that he was doing other things during those three days, but his body physically rose on the first day of the week. But there's nothing in Scripture that says it happened on Sunday morning. Now, why do I say that? Just read the Gospels. In Matthew, it says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day, the women went to the tomb. In Mark, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they went to the tomb. In Luke, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices. And John, he says, well, it was still dark. <clears throat> so we know that by dawn time, as it was transitioning from night to day, the women went there. The tomb was already empty. How long it had been empty? Just a moment or several hours. There's nothing to say that Jesus didn't resurrect the night before, after sunset, as the first day of the week began. <clears throat> now, this excites me because, remember, we go back to the Feast of First Fruits. It occurs on the first day of the week during this weekly celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, the first day of the week is Sunday. Whatever, whenever Sunday fell during that seven-day feast, that's when they would celebrate First Fruits. And that is also Jesus' resurrection day, the first day. And as we see in other places in Scripture, like 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is called our first fruits. So three days and three nights. If you take Wednesday evening, being Passover day, and it's burial by sunset, and then you measure that time, 72 hours later, you're at Saturday sunset, which is the beginning of the first day of the week. There's where the three nights. Now, these are early church fathers who wrote within short periods of time after Jesus' death who agree with the Wednesday reckoning uh, for the crucifixion. And they're more recent, like I showed you, Connor and Harris and Dake and Tory and many others now who are endorsing this timeline. Nobody's endorsing that we change our celebration schedule. Okay? But just it... If you read the scripture, you want it to make the most logical sense possible. And I think this does. But here's the important thing. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or defect. That's 1 Peter. And then 1 Corinthians 5. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And in Hebrews 9, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we might serve a living God. 
So what should we believe? Well, we should believe for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life and that whoever believes in him is not condemned and whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Amen? So we can do like Peter does and praise be to God for the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ and his great mercy has given us new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Is it the end? Not hardly. <laughs> it really marks the beginning of eternal life for those of us who do believe that he is risen. And when you hear someone say he is risen, what do you say? Amen. Here's a couple of references. These are both available on Amazon. Uh, the one on the right I haven't read yet because I just spotted it this week. Uh, but I read a little abstract from it and it comes to these same conclusions. And if you want the slides to get the details, just write me and I'll tell you. Father, we thank you for this glorious history. It is history, Lord, but it transcends history because, because of what happened in time and space, we have hope for all eternity. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the willingness of Christ to come, your willingness to allow it happen. And Lord, that you love us so much that you allow your son to die and suffer, but then have the power to raise him from the dead that gives us hope that we too shall be raised up. We thank you for that. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen.